Thank you for downloading this episode of our podcast. Hi, and welcome to the podcast for Solomon Staircase Masonic Lodge number 357, where we talk about all things related with Freemasonry, including hermetic teachings, philosophy, reason, spirituality, and much more. We're located in Buena Park, Southern California. Tune in as we continue to update our podcast with informative talks and articles for Masons worldwide and those who would like to inquire within. Let's get into Chapter 55, The General Assemblies and Lodges of Medieval Freemasons. There were two conditions of the craft in the period between the 14th and 17th centuries, which are peculiarly worth the attention of the student of Masonic history. These are the General Assembly of the Craft at stated periods, and their more customary meetings in lodges. It is to be regretted that the early records of English Freemasonry furnish but the slightest and most unsatisfactory accounts of the transactions of either of these bodies, so what most of our information on this subject is, merely by way of inference. We possess, says Hallowell Phillips, no series of documents, nor even an approach to a series sufficiently extensive to enable us to form any connected history of the ancient institutions of Masons and Freemasons. We have, in fact, no materials by which we can form any definite idea of the precise nature of those early societies. This is very true, and the historian finds himself halted at every step of his labor in tracing the early progress of the institution. We must therefore, as he goes on to say, rest contented with the light which a few incidental notices and accidental accounts, far from being altogether capable of unsuspected realliance, afford us. During the years since this passage was written, the industry of Masonic students has brought to light many old records which are of unsuspected reliance. Though still too few to form a complete series of historic stages, these records enable us to understand better than we did the real condition of the Masonic fraternities in the Middle Ages. Had these records been in Hallowell Phillips' possession when he presented the first of them as a valuable contribution to Masonic history, he would hardly have erred as he did in his belief of the truth of the Prince Edwin story. The geologist has been able to trace the gradual changes in the Earth's surface and in the character of its living inhabitants at the remotest period by the fossils which he finds bedded in the strata. The anthropologist, the scientist investigating the development of mankind, learns the true character of prehistoric man from the stone and bronze implements that he has discovered in ancient caves and mounds so the student can form a correct notion of the state of medieval Freemasonry from the scattered records of that period, which, long preserved in neglected archives or in the vast collections of a British museum, have at length been published to the world to form the materials of trustworthy history. They confirm many statements hitherto supposed to be without authority, and enable us by their silence to reject much that has been fancifully present presented as authentic. Thus, in the manuscript discovered and published by Hallowell Phillips, in which he very correctly considered to be the earliest document yet brought forward connected with the progress of Freemasonry in Great Britain, we may learn that at least as early as toward the end of the 14th century, the craft met on specified occasions and under certain rules and regulations in a body which they called the Congregation or the Assembly. Of this, there cannot be the slightest doubt since the Regius poem is recognized as having been written between the years 1350 and 1400, and as containing an authentic account of the condition of the craft at that period. 
The second article of the Constitutions in this poem stipulates that every Mason who is a master must be at the general congregation if he is properly informed where that assembly is to be held, unless he should have a reasonable excuse. We have spared the reader the out-of-date language, but have given the true meaning in the translation and added the original in a note at the foot of the page. From this law, it would appear that in the 14th century, it was the custom of master masons to assemble from various parts of the country for purposes connected with the interests of the craft. The Cook Manuscript, whose date is nearly a hundred years later, gives an account of the origin of this custom. The writer says it arose in the time of King Athelstan, who ordered that annually, or every three years, all master masons and fellows should come up from every province and country to con congregations where the master should be examined in the laws of the craft, and their skill and knowledge in their profession be investigated, and where they should receive charges or instructions for their future conduct. This, however, is a mere tradition founded on the legend by Athelstan, or rather Prince Edwin's, Assembly of Freemasons at York. It cannot be accepted as a foundation for any historical statement. But in the same manuscript, we find the evidence that it was the custom of masters coming from their lodges or places where they worked with the fellows under them and their apprentices to some sort of gathering presided over by one of the masters as the principal or chief of the meeting. This is in the second article of the Constitutions, according to the Cook Manuscript, and is in the following words, we having put the statement into modern English, that every master should be notified to come to his congregation that he may come in due time unless excused for some reason. But those who had been disobedient at such congregations, or been false to their employers, or had acted so as to deserve reproof by the craft, could be excused only by extreme sickness, of which notice was to be given to the master, that is, the principal of the assembly. Brother Mackey held that this is evidence that in the middle of the 15th century, the date of the manuscript, the custom existed of masters assembling from different points for consultation, because a law would hardly be made for the due observance of a certain custom unless that custom had a substantial existence. This is not a tradition or legend, but the statement in a manuscript constitution of the existence of a law. The manuscript is admitted to be genuine. That it tells us what were regulations of the craft that were in force when it was written is not denied. Therefore, as it gives us the rules that governed masters in their attendance upon assembly or congregation of masters, we must recognize the historical fact that at that time such assemblies or congregations did exist among the craft of Freemasons. These assemblies were probably emergent, called as necessity required. If they were held at stated and regular periods, it would hardly have been required that a master must have received previous notice to render him subject to punishment for non-attendance. This would also lead us to assume that there was some person in whom, by general consent, was vested the authority to name the time of meeting, and whose duty it was to give the necessary warning. Probably this person must have been the one to whom excuses were to be given, and who is styled, in the quaint language of the manuscript, principal of that jettering. What was the circuit within which the authority of such an assembly extended, or what was the distance from which the master masons were expected to come to it? We must learn from later constitutions, for the Cook manuscript leaves us in ignorance on the subject. It tells us only that assemblies were occasionally held, but says nothing of the number of representatives who constituted them, nor of the extent of the country which they governed. 
This is, however, determined by the other constitutions. In the Lansdowne manuscript, whose date is 150 years after that of the Cook, it is said, Every master and fellow shall come to the assembly if it be within 50 miles of him. This distance is repeated in other manuscripts. In the York, dated 1600, in the Grand Lodge of 1583, in the Sloan of 1646, in the Lodge of Antiquity of 1686, and in the Onic as late as 1701. There is, however, a difference in some of the constitutions. The Harleian manuscript, whose ascribed date is 1650, says that the Freemason must come to the assembly if it be within 10 miles of his abode, and in the constitutions of the Lodge of Hope manuscript, whose date is 1675 to 1700, and those in the Papworth manuscript, whose date is as late as 1720, but most undoubtedly have been a mere copy of some older one, the distance is reduced to five miles. Those who, in this reference to what is called sometimes a congregation, sometimes a general assembly, and once, as in the Papworth manuscript, an association, have sought to discover evidence of the existence before the 18th century of a grand lodge for England and a grand master presiding over all the craft in the kingdom, will not find themselves supported by any expressions either in these old constitutions or in any other records of the times which will warrant such an explanation of these meetings of the craft. The object of these assemblies, as described with great uniformity in all the constitutions, was to subject those who had trespassed against the rules of the craft to the judgment and award of their brethren, and where there were disputes to endeavor to reconcile the difference by a brotherly arbitration. If we may rely on a statement in what is called the Roberts Manuscript, from which we get the earliest printed book in Freemasonry, 1722, and which manuscript could have not have been later than the latter part of the 17th century, as it mentions the regulations adopted by the General Assembly in 1663, these General Assemblies had also the power of making new laws for the government of the craft. This book by J. Roberts has the title of The Old Constitutions Belonging to the Ancient and Honorable Society of Free and Accepted Masons. He says the book was taken from a manuscript wrote about 500 years since, but the internal evidence shows that all of it could not have been written so long ago. It has indeed all the appearance of being a careless copy of the Harleian manuscript, with some additional matter not found in that document, the sources of which is not known. In this book of Roberts are some new regulations said to be additional orders and constitutions made and agreed upon at a general assembly held at, and unreadable, on the 8th day of December 1663. Dr. Anderson, who it is very probable had seen this item in the work of Roberts, with an inaccuracy of which the Masonic writers of the 18th century were too often guilty, has materially altered the statement in the second edition of his Book of Constitutions, and says that Henry German, Earl of St. Albans, as their Grand Master, held a general assembly and feast on St. John's Day, December 27, 1663. It will be seen that the Roberts Constitution says nothing of the Earl of St. Albans, nothing of his having exercised the functions or assumed the title of Grand Master, nothing of a feast, and nothing of the time of assembly being on St. John the Evangelist Day, which is a modern Masonic festival. All that Anderson has here said is misleading, and by this act of unfairness, Brother Hugan correctly says his character as an accurate historian is certainly not improved. We have seen that the earlier manuscript constitutions do not speak of any specific time when the assembly was held, and it is possible, perhaps probable, 
that at first they were called only when required, according to the needs of any place where there were master masons engaged. This is, however, mere supposition. But it would seem that about the middle of the 17th century, and perhaps long before, there was instituted an annual assembly. The Harleian manuscript leaves us no doubt upon the point, for it says that for the future the said society, company, and fraternity of Freemasons shall be regulated and governed by one master and assembly and wardens, as the said company shall think fit to choose at every yearly general assembly. That this was to be done for the future might mean that what had formerly been an authorized usage was thereafter to be confirmed as a law by this new regulation. However, it is very satisfactorily shown by this Harleian document that at the time when it was written, about 1650, the Freemasons met at an annual assembly. There is another feature in the medieval condition of Freemasonry which we may discover from an examination of these old manuscript constitutions. While it is very clear that the Freemasons were in the habit of assembling annually, or perhaps in more frequent periods, in congregations, for general consultation on the interests of the whole body of craftsmen, they also united in other associations of a local character, which in the earliest records to which we have access were known by the name of lodges. This was an institution peculiar to the Freemasons. We hear of the guilds, and afterward of the company of carpenters, the company of smiths, the company of tailors, and others belonging to various crafts, but we have no knowledge that there ever existed any lodges of carpenters, smiths, or tailors. The Freemasons alone met in these local fraternities, which were of course in some way connected with the company, after it had been chartered and even before when it existed as a guild with that incorporation. The existence of these lodges is not guesswork, but capable of the most convincing proof from these old manuscripts, whose truth has never been and cannot be doubted, as well as from the testimony of other writers, some of them not of Masonic character, and therefore less open to a charge of prejudice. The proofs of the existence of lodges in which Freemasons in various parts of the kingdom met may be first presented as they are found in the old constitutions. The Regius poem, the earliest of these manuscript records, plainly refers to the fact. The fourth article of its constitutions forbids the master mason to take a boundman as an apprentice. The reason given for this rule is that the lord whose bondman he is has the right to fetch him away from any place where he might go, and if he were to take him from the lodge, it would be a cause of great trouble. And the quote is, For the lord that he is bond to may fetch the prentice wherever he go, gif in the lodge he were to take, much these he might there make. Sorry, it's old English and hard to read. And in the third point of the same constitutions, it is forbidden the apprentice to tell anyone the private affairs of his master's house or whatsoever is done in the lodge. And the quote says, The privacy of the chamber tell he no man, nigh in the lodge whatsoever they done. The Cook Manuscript, which is the next of these old records brought to light by modern researches, repeats these two regulations. It goes more at length into the causes which should prevent a bondman from being made a member, and explains the nature of the trouble, briefly mentioned in the former manuscript, which might arise if the Lord should seek to seize his bondman in the lodge. The bondman, it says, should not be received as an apprentice, because his Lord might take him, as he had the right to do, and lead him out of his lodge or out of the place where he is working. And the trouble that might then be appre apprehended would be that his fellows would peradventure help him and dispute for him, and therefore manslaughter might arise. 
The third point of these constitutions says that the member must conceal the counsel of his fellows in lodge and in chamber. Later manuscripts have the same recognition of the lodge as in the first two. The Lansdowne manuscript says that Freemasons must keep truly all the counsel of the lodge or of the chamber. This is repeated in the later constitutions. The lodge is also recognized as a place where the work of operative Freemasonry was pursued, for the Freemason is forbidden to set the Cowan to work within the lodge or outside of it. We see also that there were many lodges as distinct organizations, but all connected by one bond of fellowship, though scattered over the country. One of the regulations in these constitutions was that strange fellows were to be welcomed and put to work, if there were work for them, and if not, they were to be refreshed with money and sent into the next lodge. These operative lodges were as exclusive in relation to Cowans, rough layers, or Masons who were not accepted as free of the guild, as the modern speculative lodges are to the uninitiated, or as they are often called, the profane. Thus we find in the older constitutions a regulation forbidding employment to rough layers or masons of an inferior class who had not been admitted into the society. No masons, as a more recent constitution, shall make molds, square, or rule to any rough layers. Also that no mason set any layer within a lodge or without to hew or mold stones with no mold of his own making. In brief, he was to give such an intruder no work connected with the higher principles of the art, for the mold was the model or pattern constructed by the geometrical rules that were the most important secrets of the medieval builders. Probably these outsiders were sometimes employed in the unskilled labor. The Papworth Manuscript, whose date is about 1720, omits this rule. Whether this omission arose from the growth at that late period of a more liberal spirit, or whether it was the error of a careless copyist, are the questions not easily determined. Probably the latter was the case, as the spirit of exclusiveness adhered to the Masonic guilds as it did to all the guilds of other crafts, and is continued to the present day by the livery companies, the successors of the early guilds, where the same limits prevail. The system of apprenticeship common to all guilds was maintained with very strict regulations by the Freemasons. No master or fellow was to take an apprentice for less than seven years, nor was any master to take an apprentice unless his business was so large as to need the employment of at least two or three journeymen. The spirit of monopoly is plainly seen in this regulation. The fellows or journeymen were unwilling to give to masters of moderate means the opportunity, by the employment of apprentices who might soon learn the trade, to add to the number of craftsmen and thus to lessen the value of labor. Great regard was paid to the physical condition of the apprentice. In all the constitutions, from the very earliest to the latest, care is taken to declare that the apprentice must be able-bodied. The master, says the Regius manuscript, shall for no consideration of profit or emolument make an apprentice who is imperfect, that is, whose limbs are not altogether sound. It would be a great disgrace to the craft to make a halt and lame man. An imperfect man of this kind would do but little good to the craft so every one may know that the craft wishes to have a strong man. The compiler of the Constitutions quaintly adds the warning that a maimed man has no strength, as will be known long before night, that is, he will show his weakness by failing in his work. And the quote is, Maimed man, he hath no might, ye mal height no long your night. This was written about 1390. About 60 years afterwards, the Cook manuscript repeats the law thus. 
The sixth article is this, that no master for no covetousness nor no profit take no apprentice to teach that is imperfect. That is to say, having any maim for the which he may not truly work as he ought to do. The same rigid rule of physical perfection in the apprentice is followed in later constitutions. Thus the Lansdowne Manuscript, 1600, says of limbs whole as a man. The York Manuscript, 1600, able of body and sound of limbs. The Grand Lodge Manuscript, 1650, of limbs as a man ought to be. The Harleian Manuscript, 1650, his right and perfect limbs and personal of body to attend the said science. And the Alnick Manuscript, 1701, requires him to have his right limbs as he ought to have. When in 1717 the speculative took hold of the operative order, this regulation, enforced for at least three centuries, was shelved. And the charges adopted by the Grand Lodge in 1722, Freemasons were, were required to be only good and true men, freeborn, and of mature age. Sixteen years later, when Anderson compiled the second edition of the Book of Constitutions, he, apparently without authority, restored the original rule of the Guild, for in the same charge we find the regulation that the men made Freemasons must be hale and sound, not deformed or dismembered at the time of their making. We say that this change was apparently made without authority, for in later editions of the Book of Constitutions, published after the death of Anderson, the language of the first edition was restored. Hence, the present Grand Lodge of England does not require bodily perfection as a qualification for initiates. But, as Dermot, in compiling his Ahiman Rizon, or Book of Constitutions, 1756, for the use of the Grand Lodge of the Ancients, or the Athol Grand Lodge, adopted Anderson's second edition as the basis of his work. All the lodges springing from that Grand Lodge exacted the rigid guild lodge of bodily perfection. As a large number of the lodges in the United States were chartered by the Grand Lodge of the Ancients, it has happened that the old rule of the guild has been retained sometimes in its full extent, and sometimes with slight changes in the constitutions of the American Grand Lodges forbidding the initiation into Freemasonry of one who is deficient in body. The American usage, however, much it may be objected to because it sometimes closes the door of the lodges to otherwise worthy men, has certainly maintained more perfectly than the English the connection between the old operative and the more modern speculative branch. Another fact in the character of the medieval guild or company of Freemasons, showing the connection with that association and the speculative Freemasonry that grew out of it, is the system of secrecy that was practiced. We have shown that all the early guilds, whether Masonic or otherwise, required their members to keep the secret councils of the body. This regulation has been correctly supposed to allude to the secrets of the trade. In their transaction of business, if it were a commercial guild, or if it were a craft guild, the methods of work. These secrets could only be acquired by a long apprenticeship to the trade or art, and it was unlawful to impart them to any persons who were not members of the guild. The evidence of this has already been shown by extracts from various guild laws and from the old Masonic constitutions. But the secrets of the guild or company of Freemasons seem to have been maintained more rigidly by their statutes than were those of any other guild. What the secrets of medieval Freemasonry were will be discussed when we come to treat of the traveling Freemasons who spread in the 11th and 12th centuries over Europe, and established themselves in all the countries they visited, that their arcana or inner mysteries consisted of a secret system adopted by the Freemasons in building. Of this, as Paley has observed, little or nothing has ever come to light, 
and we may reasonably credit our ignorance on the subject to the conscientious observance by the members of the fraternity of the oath of secrecy taken by them on their admission into the society. The earlier Masonic constitutions do not give the form of the oath, or indeed refer to an oath at all. They simply direct that the counsels of the lodge and of Freemasonry shall be kept secret. We find in the Harleian manuscript, supposed to have been written in 1660, the very words of the obligation that was administered. The ordinances of that constitution prescribe that no person shall be accepted a Freemason or know the secrets of the said society until he hath first taken the oath of secrecy hereafter following. The oath of secrecy is given as follows, which will on comparison be found to be much more precise and solemn than the oath taken in the other guilds or companies. I, A.B., do in the presence of Almighty God and my fellows and brethren here present, promise and declare that I will not at any time hereafter, by any act or circumstance whatsoever, directly or indirectly, publish, discover, reveal, or make known any of the secrets, privileges, or counsels of the fraternity or fellowship of Freemasonry, which at this time, or at any other time hereafter, shall be made known unto me. So help me God and the holy contents of this book. The last words indicate that this was an oath taken on the Gospels, as was the form always used at that period in administering oaths. As to the language, the intelligent Freemason will readily perceive how closely the spirit of this old Masonic obligation has been preserved by the modern speculative fraternity. We have here a guidepost pointing out the close connection and the unbroken links between the old and the new systems. We need discuss no further the laws contained in these constitutions. The object has been sufficiently attained of proving the correctness of the claim that our modern lodges are the direct successors of these bodies whose laws and customs are so plainly shown in the old Masonic manuscripts. And that concludes chapter 55. So next up and the end of book two will be chapter 56, the Harleian manuscript as a germ of history, customs of the craft in the 17th century. So as always, thanks for listening, and next week we'll present the next chapter. Thank you for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a comment. We enjoy hearing from our listeners. If you really like what you heard, share this podcast with your friends and lodge members. Visit us online at solomonstaircase.org.